Section 5 of Tales from Dickens. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Perna. Tales from Dickens by Hallie Ermini Reeves. Oliver Twist. Oliver's Adventures. While Oliver was resting in such good hands, very strange things were occurring in the house of Fagin. When the artful Dodger told him of the arrest, the Jew was full of anger. He had intended to make a clever thief of Oliver and compel him to bring him many stolen things. Now he had not only failed in this and lost the boy's help, but he was also afraid that Oliver would tell all about the wicked practices he had seen and show the officers where he had lived. This he thought was likely to happen at any time, unless he could get the boy into his power again. Something had occurred, too, meantime, that made Fagin almost crazy with rage at losing him. It was this. A wicked man, so wicked that he was afraid of thunder, who went by the name of Monks, had come to him and told him he would pay a large sum of money if he could succeed in making Oliver a thief and so ruin his reputation and his good name. It was plain enough that for some reason the man hated Oliver, but, cunning as Fagin was, he would never have guessed why. For Monks was really Oliver's older half-brother. A little while before this story began, Oliver's father had been obliged to go on a trip to a foreign country, where he died very suddenly. But before he died he made a will, in which he left all his fortune to be divided between the baby Oliver and his mother. He left only a small sum to his elder son, because he knew that he was wicked and did not deserve any. The will declared Oliver should have the money only on condition that he never stain his name with any act of meanness, dishonour, cowardice, or wrong. If he did do this, then half the money was to go to the older son. The dying man also wrote a letter to Oliver's mother, telling her that he had made the will and that he was dying. But the older son, who was with him when he died, found the letter and destroyed it. So Oliver's poor mother, knowing nothing of all this, when his father did not come back, thought at last that he had deserted her, and in her shame stole away from her home, poor and ill-clad, to die finally in the poorhouse. The older brother, who had taken the name of Monks, hunted and hunted for them, because he hated Oliver on account of their father's will, and wanted to do him all the harm he could. He discovered that they had been taken into the poorhouse and went there, but this was after Oliver had run away. He found, however, to his satisfaction, that the boy knew nothing about his parentage or his real name, and monks made up his mind to prevent his ever learning. There was only one person who could have told Oliver, and that one was Mrs. Bumble. She knew through the locket she had kept, which had belonged to Oliver's mother, and which contained the dead woman's wedding ring with her name engraved inside it. 
When Mrs. Bumble heard that a man named Monks was searching for news of Oliver, she thought it a capital chance to make some money. She went, therefore, to Monks' house and sold the locket and ring to him. These, Monks thought, were the only proofs in the world that it could ever show Oliver who he was, and to make it impossible for him ever to see them, he dropped them through a trapdoor in his house, down into the river where they could never be found. But Monks did not give up searching for Oliver, and at last on the very day that Oliver was arrested, he saw him coming from Fagin's house with the artful dodger. From his wonderful resemblance to their dead father, he guessed at once that Oliver was the half-brother whose very name he hated. Knowing the other now to be in London, Monks was afraid that by some accident he might yet find out what a fortune had been willed him. If he could only make Oliver dishonest, Monks reflected, half their father's fortune would become his own. With this thought in mind, he had gone to Fagin and had made him his offer of money to make the boy a thief. Fagin, of course, had agreed, and now, to find his victim was out of his power, made the Jew grind his teeth with rage. All these things made Fagin determined to gain possession of Oliver again, and to do this he got the help of two others, a young woman named Nancy and her lover, a brutal robber named Bill Sykes. These two discovered that Oliver was at Mr. Brownlow's house and lay in wait to kidnap him if he ever came out. The chance they waited for occurred before many days. Mr. Brownlow sent Oliver to take some money to the very bookstall in front of which the artful dodger had stolen the handkerchief, and Oliver went without dreaming of any danger. Suddenly a young woman in a cap and apron screamed out behind him very loudly, Oh, my dear little brother, and threw her arms tight around him. Oh, my gracious, I've found him, she cried. Come home directly, you naughty boy, for shame to treat your poor mother so. Oliver struggled, but to no purpose. Nancy, for it was she, told the people that crowded about them that it was her little brother, who had run away from home and nearly broken his mother's heart, and that she wanted to take him back. Oliver insisted that he didn't know her at all, and hadn't any sister. But just then Bill Sykes appeared, as he had planned, and said the young woman was telling the truth and that Oliver was a little rascal and a liar. The people were all convinced at this, and when Sykes struck Oliver and seized him by the collar, they said, serves him right. And so Oliver found himself dragged away from Mr. Brownlow to the filthy house where lived Fagin. The wily old Jew was overjoyed to see them. He smiled such a fiendish smile that Oliver screamed for help as loud as he could, and at this Fagin picked up a great jagged club to beat him with. Now Nancy had been very wicked all her life, but in spite of this there was a little good in her. She had already begun to repent having helped steal the boy, and now his plight touched her heart. She seized the club and threw it into the fire, and so saved him the beating for that time. 
For many days Oliver was kept a prisoner. He was free to wander about the mildewed old house, but every outer door was locked and every window had closed iron shutters. All the light came in through small round holes at the top, which made the rooms gloomy and full of shadows. Spiderwebs were all over the walls and often the mice would go scampering across the floor. There was only one window to look out of and that was in a back garret, but it had iron bars and looked out only onto the housetops. He found only one book to read. This was a history of the lives of great criminals and was full of stories of secret thefts and murders. For the old Jew, having tortured his mind by loneliness and gloom, had left the volume in his way, hoping it would instill into his soul the poison that would blacken it forever. But Oliver's blood ran cold as he read, and he pushed the book away in horror, and, falling on his knees, prayed that he might be spared from such deeds and rescued from that terrible place. He was still on his knees when Nancy came in and told him he must get ready at once to go on a journey with Bill Sykes. She had been crying and her face was bruised as though she had been beaten. Oliver saw she was very sorry for him, and indeed she told him she would help him if she could, but that there was no use trying to escape now because they were watched all the time, and if he got away Sykes would certainly kill her. Nancy took him to the house where Sykes lived, and the next morning the latter started out, making Oliver go with them. Sykes had a loaded pistol in his overcoat pocket, and he showed this to Oliver and told him if he spoke to anybody on the road or tried to get away, he would shoot him with it. They walked a long way out of London, once or twice riding in carts which were going in their direction. Whenever this happened... Sykes kept his hand in the pocket where the pistol was, so that Oliver was afraid to appeal for help. Late at night they came to an old deserted mansion in the country, and in the basement of this, where a fire had been kindled, they joined two other men whom Oliver had seen more than once in Fagin's house in London. The journey had been long and cold, and Oliver was very hungry but he could scarcely eat the supper that was given to him for fear of what they intended to do with him in that lonely spot. He was so tired, however, that he finally fell fast asleep and knew nothing more till two o'clock in the morning when Sykes woke him roughly and bade him come with them. It was foggy and cold and dark outside. Sykes and one of the others each took one of Oliver's hands and so they walked a quarter of a mile to where was a fine house with a high wall around it. They made him climb over the wall with them, and pulling him along, crept towards the house. It was not till now that Oliver knew what they intended. They were going to rob the house and make him help them, so that he too would be a burglar. His limbs began to tremble and he sank to his knees, begging them to have mercy and to let him run away and die in the fields, rather than to make him steal. But Sykes drew his pistol with a frightful oath and dragged him on. In the back of the house was a window, which was not fastened, because it was much too small for a man to get through. But Oliver was so little that he could do it easily. With the pistol in his hands, Sykes put Oliver through the window, 
gave him a lantern and bade him go and unlock the front door for him. Oliver had made up his mind that as soon as he got beyond the range of Sykes's pistol, he would scream and wake everybody in the house. But just then there was a sound from inside, and Sykes called to him to come back. Suddenly there was a loud shout from the top of the stairs, a flash, a report, and Oliver staggered back with a terrible pain in his arm and with everything swimming before his eyes. He heard cries and a loud ringing of a bell and felt Sykes drag him backward through the window. He felt himself being carried along rapidly and then a cold sensation crept over his heart and he knew no more. End of section 5